Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of his story, a story that he has been writing since the beginning for our good and his glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, good morning, everybody. Y'all awake today? It's a little chilly out there, isn't it? Don't worry, the warm weather is coming, or Jesus is coming, one or the other. Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 3, and it's really important that you have a Bible. If you don't, we have them in the window seals, and I'm sure Kevin would be happy to throw a Bible to you. There you go. Uh, Because you're not going to believe what we're going to read in here today. Like, this is really uh, one of those stories in the Bible that's so rich and so deep that it's impossible for us to cover everything in the next four hours, but we're going to try, all right? But it's the story that every one of you knows and every one of you has heard, and there's very few people on this planet that has not heard. This is the story of Adam and Eve. This is the story of Satan coming into the garden as a serpent. This is them eating the apple and then sewing fig leaves together, them sinning, and then God drop-kicking Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. You've heard it? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, uh, how we're going to approach this, and uh, you're going to have to go with me on this one, okay, because uh, this is going to be a community project as we get to the truth here, because uh, this is less of a sermon and more about you taking what we're talking about and examining your own heart. So it means that really we're, we're not so focused on what I'm doing as much as we're focused on what God is doing with you here. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you don't, that's okay. We'll guide you through that. Uh, but it means that I'm going to ask you to be somewhat self-aware, somewhat aware of yourself today as we talk about this. Because as David Atkinson, the great theologian, said, in this 13 verses, we have the uh, anatomy of temptation, the anatomy of sin, and a beautiful picture of God. So we're going to talk about those three things. You ready? No, <laughs> no, Michael, I get it. All right, so Jack, are you reading for me? Jack, who, the anatomy of sin, temptation, and a beautiful picture of God. Uh, yes, Jack, would you please read for us Genesis chapter 3, and we keep encouraging you, if you don't have a Bible, get one. If you don't bring a pen in here, get one, because uh, it's important for us to come in ready for God to speak to us as students of God and his word. So, Jack. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who said that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I have commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord, we pray now that uh, you got to help us, Jesus, because uh, we love to uh, distract ourselves. We love to even deceive ourselves. We love to protect ourselves even from you. And so, Father, would you do what only your spirit can do and come and open our eyes and give us revelation of your truth. In Christ's name, amen. So it's really the saddest of all stories because... In this story, at the beginning of creation, the beginning of the world, we see death, we see betrayal, we see separation. For the very first time in the world, before this, it did not exist in the world, but now that this happened, now we see fear has come into the world, and shame has come into the world, and death has come into the world. In fact, this was the pivotal point to where uh, decay and death actually entered into the world. And God was declaring that Adam and Eve, one day, they are now going to die. And everything around them is going to a place of decay. But something more happened here that we have to kind of pull back the veil. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they were righteous. They were perfectly righteous. They were sinless and without sin. And the moment that they sinned, they weren't righteous with one big mistake. They were actually now unrighteous people. Their righteousness moved from purity to impurity, from right to now wrong. It's almost, if you can imagine, if I had a big bowl of water up here and squirted some uh, food dye into it, you wouldn't be able to separate the dye from the water anymore because they they would be one now. And that's the same thing that happened here with Adam and Eve. When they sinned, something profound happened with them that they moved from from righteous to unrighteous But something else happened. And we see it in Ephesians chapter 2 because we have to realize that Adam was our father. And whatever happened to Adam, he now was going to pass on to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation that we were all about to inherit from Adam the fruits of that first deed of disobedience. You tracking with me? We're not inheriting righteousness from Adam anymore because he wasn't righteous. He now was unrighteous, and he was passing his unrighteousness down to each of us. And that unrighteousness has a name. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live. What Paul is saying in Ephesians is that more than just their body died, something else died in Adam and Eve when they disobeyed. See, I want you to think of it this way, is... If we are body, soul, and spirit, meaning my body, you know, I got a body, you got a body, 
If you don't have anybody, that's an old song. All right. Uh, but my body, I get it, you know, and yet I don't get it. It's a gift, and it's tied to my spirit. And that's a whole other sermon where we could talk about how our bodies are gifts and pathways into the life of the spirit. But I also have a soul, and my soul is my mind, my emotions, my experiences, this personality of who I am. And then I have this thing called the spirit. And when Adam and Eve sinned, this part of them died. This part of them died. And so every seed of Adam was born with a dead spirit. Now, the reason that's so important for you to understand, hang with me, is because if we understand the condition of Adam and Eve, now we begin to understand the mission of Jesus a little bit more clearly. Jesus did not come to make you better. Jesus did not come to get you to sin less. He didn't come to get you to give up that vice that you have. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus came on a rescue mission to raise dead men and women to life. He came on a resurrection mission. He didn't come to rescue you from that sin you committed in seventh grade or that stuff you did in college. Oh, yeah. I know what you did in college. Because I was right alongside of you right there in college. I get it. Or those things that you hope nobody ever finds out about. Jesus, of course Jesus died for those things. But I want you to understand that what we were born into was the curse of death. That there is a cloud of death over all of creation, including us. And we are sons and daughters of Adam. And we were born into death. And when we experience Jesus, he's not trying to make me better. He's trying to make me alive for the very first time. That's why it's so confusing to us. And it's why churches so often don't want to talk about that because that's something we can't control, the life of the Spirit. It's better for us to have a church where we just talk about being good people because it has the appearance that we can control that, the appearance, all right? But the life of the Spirit, come on, you gotta, you got to be kidding me. The Spirit of God is in this room? He's doing something that you can't control? That's scary. Listen to what Paul says later. But because of his great love for us, this is in Ephesians chapter 2, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. I'm not making this up. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. It was nothing you did, nothing you added to the equation. Jesus made you fully alive spiritually. And then God raised us up with Christ. And get this. Boy, this, I, study Scripture and try to figure out what this means. Because this is like winning the lottery. Look what he says. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Here's what's crazy. Most of what's happening in the New Testament is trying to convince you of what you are. It's not trying to get you to be better. It's trying to get you to actually believe what God has actually done in your life. In fact, this whole thing that Jesus was on a resurrection mission and now I've been raised to newness of life and this life of the Spirit is now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, that I am an heir and a co-heir with Christ of the kingdom of God. Listen, this is Galatians chapter 4. This is verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, not to redeem, to redeem, I'm sorry, let me start over. This is too good for me to mess it up. It says, but when the time 
When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his son into your heart. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave to death, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also his heir. Do you hear that? You're, hey, when Christ comes and makes me alive, he resurrects me immediately at that moment. Now I'm not a slave to death anymore. I am now a son of the living God. I've been adopted into the Father's family and now have become an heir. And later in Ephesians, he says, I pray your eyes would be open so that you could literally see what you've got in your hands. And he says, riches, hope, and power. You've got those. If you have Jesus, you have them. So the enemy that same enemy that was a snake in the garden, he's still at work today. The New Testament says he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So we're about to get to the passage, I promise. But let me tell you what he's doing. He cannot steal from you what Christ has given to you. He cannot kill the life that Christ has given you. That is in Christ, that is secure in Christ. He can't take it away. He can't destroy it. He can't even tarnish it. He can't even touch it. When it comes to all the promises that God has made to you, I mean, we just baptize, you know, into the promises of God. We have been so promised, we've been so baptized into the promises of God, Satan can't take any of that away from you, and he knows it. But what he can do is deceive you. And what is the deception? The deception is to convince you that you aren't who you are and to convince you that God is not who he is and to convince you that the promises that he has made to you are not really true. Why? Well, let's talk about temptation. We're going to dive into it in deep, but let me say this before I ever start, okay? Uh, whatever temptation you have fallen into, whatever sin you have committed, there is no possible way when you've been raised with Christ in newness of life that you can out God's grace. There is no sin that you can commit that will undo what Christ has already done to you. If he has brought you to life, you're alive. And there ain't a sin on the planet that's actually going to kill what Christ has resurrected. Scripture even says where sin increases, grace increases all the more. So much so, it's such a bold statement in the New Testament that Paul had to come back and go, well, am I saying that you should, so, should you go sin boldly so that you experience more grace? No, 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 slow down. Paul is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I am saying is you are secure Okay, so let's talk about the anatomy of temptation. You ready? I feel like I'm already worked up. So in the, when we think about temptation, first let's just talk about uh, Satan loves to use sin, and he loves to use sin in your life, not to do what you think he wants to do in your life. He loves to use sin to help you forget who you are and to forget what you have and to forget who God is. He's trying to deceive you. See, have you ever sinned like big time? Only one or two of you. All right. Can I get testimony? You know, when I was seven years old, I was in a store with my mom, and I looked at my mom, and I, there was a pack of like big league chew. And I was like, hey, mom, can I have some big league chew? And she goes, no. You get no gum for you today. No gum, no gum. 
And so she's checking out, and I realize it's just right there. And I picked it up, and I stuck it in my back pocket, and I walked out and never paid for it. It was glorious. Stealing is so amazing. Like, you don't have to work for it. You just take it. And so when I got home, I went to the bathroom, and I chewed my big league chew. You know what big league chew is? Okay, all right. So, you, all right, so I'm chewing the bubble gum and blowing bubbles, listening at the door. You know, can anybody hear me pop that bubble? And then at night, I'd go to bed, and I'd chew a little before I go to bed, you know, and I would just eat my morsels of big league gum, and then something started to happen. I started to feel guilty about what I was doing, and I started to feel like, wait a minute, I stole that gum. And then I started, something weird started happening. I started to walk into public and start to believe that people knew that I had stolen that gum, that they could see it in me, that my guilt now was so heavy on my back, I knew everybody could see it. I didn't want to go to church anymore because I didn't want my pastor to look down and go, behold the sinner in the room, <laughs> big league Jew, I saw it. You know? And what sin does, if we do not deal with our sin, then sin deals with us. And what sin is doing is taking us to a place of unbelief because all sin is rooted in unbelief. And what does unbelief do? Unbelief moves belief from God to me. Unbelief moves trust from God to me. Unbelief moves power from God to me. Because here's what I did as a seven-year-old. I'm going to make up for this. And what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to obey my mom. I'm going to do my chores. I'm going to do penance for my crime. And I'm going to try harder. And here's what's crazy is every one of us can relate to that. That when we look at ourselves in shame, we make these, these weird commitments that we're going to get better and we're going to be better because shame tells me I don't belong and I'm not worthy of being loved. And so I'm going to work hard to belong and be worthy to love. It moves belief from God to me, trust from God to me, power from God to me. And we know it. We, we know what it's like to try to live a life where we're proving that we're worthy. I was thinking about this this week and... There is a scene in Rocky, you know, the original. I don't know what these knockoffs are. And where Rocky is saying to Adrian, I can't do it, you know. And, and Adrian's like, what do you mean you can't do it? He goes, I can't beat Apollo. Or, I can't beat Apollo, you know. And, uh, and so, I, I, anyway, she goes, you've worked so hard, Rocky. And he says, yeah, that don't matter. Because <laughs> I was nobody before. And she goes, don't say that. And then he let his heart be seen. Oh, come on, Adrian, it's true. I was nobody. But that don't matter either, you know, because I was thinking it really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and the bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I want just another bum from the neighborhood. I understand that. Thank you. Yo, Adrian. All right. But we can relate. We can relate to how, how are you working hard 
because you have moved your belief from God to you? How are you working hard because you've moved your trust from God to you? How are you thriving and striving to prove to somebody somewhere that you have moved the power from God to you? Look at what Satan did. The first thing he did was he questioned God's word. He said to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Isn't it odd that we have to understand that the end goal of temptation is to actually put you in charge. The, the goal of temptation is to move belief, trust, and power from God to you. To make you the ultimate decider of what is right or wrong. To move you from a place of dependency upon God to independence. See, I don't care if you're 10 years old and you disobey your mom or you're 30 and you decided that you don't need a Sabbath in your life. When we move belief, trust, and power from God to ourselves, now we are in charge. And the first thing we have to do is question this. Did he really say? Come on. Did he really say that about how I should view money? Did he really say that's how I should think about my work? that it's really a calling? Come on. Did he really say that's how I should understand love? Is that what he really said about sex? Come on. Did he really say that about sex or about thoughts of my life or my career or about friendships or about how I spend my free time or about rest? Come on. Did he really say? So the first thing Satan did with Eve was he put doubt in her mind about what God really said. And the second thing that he did, and he does this with us too, is he questions God's motives. Look at verse 4. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, noting good and evil. Come on. He may have said that. But do you know why he said that? It's not for your good. It's to protect himself. His motives are not good. And then the final thing that uh, we see in this story is the fruit of when we subtly stop trusting God, believing in God, and understanding God's power and moving those things to ourselves is that we actually become the measuring stick. It says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food for her, and pleasing to her eye, and also desirable for her gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So what she did is she, she knew what God's standards were. She knew what God had said, even though Satan was tempting her to kind of twist the words. She also uh, kind of knew, she knew what Satan wanted her to do. She knew she was in the middle of this, this battle between what God said and what Satan said. And she looked at both of them equally, and you can kind of see her kind of weighing her options. And then the option she chose is not God and not Satan. She chose herself. She put down God's book. She put down Satan's temptation. And she rose as the one that will decide for her. In fact, I'm so familiar with this. I got to tell you, I, there is nobody that I love as much as me. I love me some me. I do, and there's nobody as influential to me as me because 
Nobody talks to me as much as I do. I, I know me. I love me some me. I'm on me throne. I love it. And any temptation that kind of moves me and nudges me a little bit more to, hey, when you look at the fruit of the tree and that's good for you, and hey, it's pleasing to your eye, and guess what? You should desire it because it's going to make you wise. I don't care what God says, and I don't care what Satan says. Move out of the way, boys. It's time for me to make a decision. Here's what's crazy is that's true in every temptation. Every temptation is like that. Every temptation is to try to move me to the throne of my own life. And here's what's crazy is temptation is a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal part of your life. If you know Christ, if you've been made alive, if that resurrection life has been happening in your life, this is normal. In fact, it happens every day. And you go, I don't think it happens every day. You know, because we're thinking about, you know, when I'm tempted to cheat, steal, lie. Well, I haven't been tempted to cheat, steal, lie, commit adultery, or kill anybody for a long time. It's been like a week since I've wanted to kill somebody. (laughs) What if, what if temptation is more subtle than that? The other night I went to bed. Have you ever had this experience and I couldn't go to sleep? My head was just just going crazy and I I was laying there in bed and just tossing just I want to go to sleep my mind wouldn't shut off and then I realized am I hungry what what is happening right here in my body what's happening in my body my soul seems to be in rebellion against what I wanted to do right now and what was happening in my body wasn't I wasn't hungry my stomach was in knots because my mind was replaying a situation of what had happened that day that was causing tremendous anxiety because it didn't end the way I wanted it to end. But it didn't stop there. Now my mind was creating a future that didn't exist, and my body was reacting radically to this future of a week from now, two weeks from now, five years from now, ten years from now, I'm homeless and nobody loves me. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, I the tumbling of a future that this one event is about to destroy everything. And it was not that big of an event, but my mind and my body was going there. And what was subtly happening? I was subtly moving my trust from believing in God to believing in me, from moving my trust from God to me, power from God to me. And the war was going on in that bed, in my heart, in my head. And what was fighting? Forget who you are. Forget what you have. Forget who he is. Be afraid. I would prefer the temptation to kill somebody. I just tell you, that's just easier to spot. In 1 Corinthians, it says, There's no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Where are you tempted? Do you know? It's important. Remember, it's going to happen. It is happening every day. Where are you tempted to live out of fear? Where are you tempted to live in shame? Where do you not believe God's promises for you? You're a son and a daughter of the high king of heaven. Where do you not trust that God is good? 
Where is it in your life that you don't believe God is good? Or you have a hard time believing God is good? When I read those, and I wrote those down last night, I was like, that's almost every area of my life. Those things want to creep into every area of our lives. I have a friend. She is amazing. She's one of my heroes. Uh, but she was abused in the most horrific way by her father growing up. And she, she has fought hard for health, and she's fought hard uh, for sanity uh, to come out of such trauma and to be a strong, powerful woman. But I'm going to tell you, to this day, her war is when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, our Father who aren't in heaven, she bristles because it triggers everything inside of her. And she goes, that's where I fight spiritually. My temptation is to believe that my heavenly father is not a different kind of father than my earthly father. That's how Satan loves to trigger her. How does he trigger you? Do you realize that what's at stake in temptation is you knowing who you are? Listen to this. When Jesus went into the desert, he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Maybe you've never read this story. But before, right before the story is the baptism of Jesus, and listen what happens. In the baptism of Jesus, God declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Look what God does. He declares to Jesus, son, I'm pleased. This is powerful stuff. Son, pleased. He goes into the desert. Where does Satan attack? Those two areas. Those two areas. Are you really a son? Is he really pleased with you? Because he knew that if he could unhinge Jesus' belief, trust, and understanding of power from God to himself, even though he was God, complicated, I know, he knew there's the tumbling effect. This is Henry Nouwen about the temptations of Jesus. He says, there were many voices speaking loudly, voices like, prove you're worth something. Prove you have any contribution to make. Do something relevant. These are the voices Jesus heard right after he heard, you are my beloved. Another voice said, prove you are the beloved. Do something. Change these stones into bread. Be sure you're famous. Jump from the temple so that everybody can see. And you will be known. Grab some power so that you have real influence. Bend your knee to me and I will make you king of the world. And Jesus said, no, I don't have to prove anything. I am already the beloved. See, not having something and having something but not believing that you have something is the same thing. If you've ever lost your car keys and they're in your pocket, you have them, but you don't know to have them, but you're still living your life as if you don't have them. You understand that? See, here's what's crazy about temptation. Uh, what Satan meant for evil, God means for good. In James chapter 1, it says, Brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In other words, what Satan has tried to unhinge me from, that very opportunity, even when I fail and walk into repentance, is, is putting pressure on me, and it's squeezing like the toothpaste so that what's in the tooth tube is going to come out. And what's coming out? I'm his. I don't care how much you squeeze the toothpaste of my life. 
You want to know what's at the center of me? It's not sin. What's at the center of me is I am his beloved and he is well pleased because Christ has raised me from the dead. So my temptations, when I struggle with temptations, it's causing me to struggle with, oh yeah, I know who I am. I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to cling to that. Or even when I fail, I come to God in repentance and go, man, I have forgotten who you are. I have forgotten who I am. Restore under me my sanity. Well, I've got 30 more minutes to preach, but we're out of time. I didn't even get into how sin separates us from ourselves, from each other, and from God. Let me just go to the last point, can I? And then you can go back and study it. In verse 8 it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man, Where are you? God knew where he was. The question was, Adam, do you know where you are? Here's the crazy thing is God's still walking in the garden. It actually says in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus came to live among us. I mean, I remember when Jesus walked into my garden. When he walked into my garden and said, do you know where you are? And I, had to, I have no idea where I am. He walked into the garden of my shame. He walked into the garden of my sin. He walked into the garden of my loneliness and my fear and my death. And he goes, I'm coming to find you. And here's what's crazy about this morning is that that same Jesus that found me when I wasn't even looking for him, he's still walking today. He's looking for you. No matter what you've done, he's looking for you. No matter where you've been, he's looking for you. No matter how far away you think you've gone from God, he's looking for you. Jesus is looking for you today. And, you know, and I could talk about temptation and I could talk to you about, you know, memorize God's word. Psalm 119, I store your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. I could talk about accountability. You need to have friends with you that you could pick up the phone and call so that you don't drink or whatever sin it is that you love. You know, or I could talk about where Paul teaches us about our thought life and how we need to take every thought captive. That's really important. That's something to teach. But today, all I'm saying is run, run to the one who's walking through the garden who's saying, do you know where you are? Because he is waiting for you. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up in this neighborhood. It was an it was interesting neighborhood, but there were a lot of little kids with no parents. Like I, I don't ever remember seeing any parents, but we'd all go out when it got dark, and all us little kids would play hide-and-go-seek uh, or jailbreak or something like that in the streets where somebody was it and everybody else would go hide. And there was always those one or two kids that you could never find. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever played hide-and-go-seek? And there are a couple that were professionals. I think they're still hiding right now. There's probably a 60-year-old guy in a bush somewhere down in Louisiana, you know. I didn't know they were find me. And we get tired. We're like, we're tired of looking for you. Like, and so we had this saying, maybe you had it when you were a kid too, where we'd go to the base and everybody that wanted to go hide again, that were tired of waiting, started shouting, Ali, Ali, oxen free. Y'all know that? Did y'all ever hear that? Here's the roots of that. I'm like, what does that mean? It's an English term, 
that says, all ye, all ye, you get to come in for free. Yeah, that's the cry today. If Satan has blinded you about your father's love for you, the power he has for you, the trust that you can put in him, Ali Ali oxen free. Today, we can run to the one who's walking through the garden instead of running from him and trust him and restore back belief and trust and even this place of power to its right place and live free. Then we can talk about the anatomy of sin. Let me pray for us. Lord, I don't know what you're doing this morning. Um, I know in my own heart, Father, I have been duped, and many times I've been deceived, and many times I have been coerced to run away, to hide belief from God to myself, to put me on the throne of my life from trust that there ain't nobody I trust as much as me to even power that I'm working so hard to get more power, to get more things, to get more stuff, to secure my position. And we have been duped. We have been deceived that this resurrection life that you give us, Jesus, is less than what it is. I pray that, Lord, you would sweep through this building right now like fresh wind with fresh fire, burn away that which is not of you, Lord, and let us breathe the free air. The cry of our Father who is crying, Ali, Ali, oxen free. And let us run to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.